Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. On average, we have, right, let's look at the numbers. On average, we have about 50 to 60,000 babies born in this country every year. It's got, the numbers have gone down a bit, but they're coming back up again in a minute. That's a lot of people, right? That's live births. Then we have about one in four pregnancies are ending in miscarriage. And we have a number ending in stillbirth. And, I'm, you know, we're not even going to talk about how difficult it was to have an abortion in a pandemic under the health regime of the abortion legislation, because why could you not leave your house? for two kilometers radius, yet you had to get, organize a bus, get on a plane or a boat, leave the country, because you had, you weren't quite fatal enough at your 20 week scan. You know, all of it is all encompassing and it does take finance. And women are important and families are really, really important. We're the crux of our society, right? What our children do, what they see, that's how they respond to their lives. Hey there, and welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Suzanne Kane, and I'm joined by producer D. Ready today. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks so much for having me again. And um, this is, of course, the podcast inspired by an Instagram post, which asked whether anyone out there would tell the real stories of those who had been affected by the COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. And that's exactly what we've been doing over the past five episodes. We've heard from Amy De Bruyne, who put up that original call to arms on Insta. And we heard from, from Natalie. We've heard from James, Maura and Emma and all the amazing stories that have been so bravely told so far. So bravely told. And that's even before we scratch the surface of the amazing emails that people have sent to us as well on maternity at goloudnow.com. And of course, across the series, we've also had the opportunity to get regular updates from your co-host and my co-producer, Sue Murphy, in the lead up to the birth of her second child. Now, Sue isn't able to join us today nor is Alison, uh, but Sue's is for a very exciting reason because baby Thomas arrived last week. Um, so we're delighted to actually be able to share a little wee update on that uh, with all of you today. Sue recorded this on WhatsApp and sent it to us uh, earlier today. Hello, everyone. Um, just an update from me. Um, I currently have a small baby. Um, well, not small. He's quite big, actually. <laughs> on me um, after a night of, I think I got about an hour's sleep. Um, yeah, so I think I got to the counter like 16 feeds or something. So um, yeah, I went in last Friday, last Thursday night, sorry, to have my C-section and was admitted. And uh, it was so funny because because of my experience last time, I knew so many of the midwives. So it was basically like a reunion for the people I already knew. And um, they took such good care of me. Insulin went in, um, a drip. Um, the next morning at six o'clock, and was brought down. Um, I had a slight reaction to the um, labour. Again, they they reckon that my body doesn't labour well. So um, I had a drop in oxygen and a drop in blood pressure, but nothing too serious because of what had happened the last time, and they were aware of it. And baby Thomas was born at eight forty four a.m and has been an absolute angel ever since um except for keeping me up all night to feed of course so the experience was different very different and i remember amy de Bruyne actually saying you know i didn't realize how um clinical and medical it was going to be it wasn't like this lovely like labor experience but um everything was safe and um i was in recovery quite soon and he's been breastfeeding fine which didn't work out the last time it did work out this time in terms of the restrictions it didn't really affect us um my husband dropped me in the night before he uh came in the next day and uh, was admitted straight into delivery they brought him up at half seven the impression i get from the wards and from the, the midwives and from um, the staff is that they're finding it very tough to support women um, who have been having difficult pregnancies, difficult uh, labours and um, I definitely got the sense that the, the staff in the hospitals are very much run ragged and um, have now to have the extra element of being the support partner for mothers who are coming into the hospital and having their babies. But as usual, 
Rotunda staff are incredible, incredible women and they took such good care of us um, and because of the experience last time it actually made everything a little bit easier this time and I, I just can't like calling them at three o'clock in the morning to come down to the bed to help me with something or you know I'll take your baby now for a few minutes you sit down and eat your dinner I remember when I was going I'm going to do a round and I'm going to go now and take Thomas you sit down now and eat your dinner you know because obviously my husband was trying to get home to our daughter as much as possible so I just the whole experience like I, I just always feel like the higher echelons of the HSE or the, of the hospitals let the staff down so badly because their face to face in terms of how they take care of people in those wards is just incredible. And it is a vocation. It's not there's nothing about it that's just like a job for them. Like uh, one of the my favorite uh, midwives, Pauline, um, I had two lines in my hand because my blood pressure dropped. They had to put a second line into my hand. And she came down at like she was about to finish her shift. She, Why is that line still in your hand? And still insisted on taking it out. And that's the kind of staff and the commitment that you have from people like that. So delighted to see that the restrictions have been lifted and hopefully all the hospitals would adhere to all of that as well. So um, that's my little update. Um, hopefully I'll be back in action to talk to you guys next week with a bit a longer. I'm going to try and get uh, some sleep now. So talk to you soon. It's so exciting and amazing to hear from her um, and how she's getting on beyond WhatsApp. Um, and also, by the way, can I, what a group, because we have our WhatsApp group that we're all on. And I think we were all like pasting, uh, expecting parents or expecting friends. It was lovely to be on that outside of that bubble and waiting for the news to arrive of, of his arrival. And then now we're just mad for baby spam. We're just like, send more pictures of the baby. <laughs> we need to see more pictures. But she's doing so well. She's amazing. She's incredible. And like she's even as 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 people will have heard in the update there, she's talking about being back uh, hosting next week. She's just she's phenomenal. And like I'm just of all the people, I'm just so, so glad that this went well for her because I mean, but also she was she was, let's face it, the driving force that got this podcast made. She was the one that sent me the Insta post from Amy and the amount of work and recording that she did, you know, in the very weeks up to her due date was just unreal. So, Sue, you are an absolute legend. We love you very much. And thank you for making this happen, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And also to, to kind of note um, is that she was very much on the ground. And sometimes like, you know, even for me, when you're sitting on the outside, you know, on the peripheral of, of having gave birth, it's kind of you know, almost, dare I say, almost easier to give a reflective um, opinion of what's happened or a reflection on where what your story is. But where Sue was, you know, brave enough to say out loud and say, this is where I'm attending. This is what I'm seeing happening on the ground. And when we get those, as we've seen so far in these episodes, when those women's voices rise up and we hear them, it gives other people the strength. And also, you know, it was good information as well for, for other expecting parents to know what was happening in real time, you know. Oh, big time, Suzanne. And I think like it's one of those things as well. As you say, it's easier to look back on something like that and to know that you're in a safe space to share what happened because you've had that little bit of time to digest it and you know yourself, you know, can you talk about this? Do you want to talk about this? So incredibly brave of Sue to kind of step up to the plate and say, no, I'm going to share my week by week updates, which she has pretty much every week across. And that, I mean, the only week we didn't hear from her was last week, but that's because she was literally um, getting ready to go into hospital to have Thomas. And so uh, phenomenally brave by her. And I just think, you know, there's people listening to this who might be in the position where they are trying to figure out what's going to happen to them when they go in. Um, And some of the stories are, as we know, over the weeks, they have been quite harrowing. So I think it has been really great balance to be able to give to that, that full picture of what's going on that we've been trying to do with this series to actually have Sue be, you know, so open and so honest about what's happening on the ground with her, because it just having that in real time story um, makes it a more relatable and be more, you know, uh, 
reassuring, I think, for, for people who are also going through it. 100%. And Sue uh, referenced there, there's some really good news that we've been celebrating over the past week. But Linda will be along uh, a little bit later on the podcast. Um, I, I'm a, Before we speak to Linda, I'm like, I'm afraid to say it feels like there's a shift. But... <laughs> but like I like Linda will will, will tell us that and I I probably feel like maybe Linda has been pushing the mountain and pushing the mountain you know and I think that every so often you just get a bit of momentum and it feels like it's starting to go with that but until she gives us that you know that full update um we'll take it all in into account when we talk to Linda later on the podcast no I think you're so right because it does feel like things are starting to shift and you know it is a huge credit to the work of people like Linda and you know, everybody involved in the better maternity care care movement. And we've heard from a few of them over the course of the show, like Amy and Emma would be really involved as well. Um, And it is like, I think it's kind of funny that this is happening just after the halfway point in this show as well, because it feels like it's a really good reminder for us as we're talking about it, that yes, there's been a shift, but my God, there is still so much to do. And what we have seen, what we have heard just underpins the fact that so many of the issues are actually structural issues that have been uncovered by the COVID-19 pandemic, not ones that have been created by it. And I think if we can use this sort of momentum to get behind better maternity care, because the better maternity care movement is just that. It's not better maternity care in COVID. It's better maternity care. And the women of Ireland deserve at least that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And activists like Linda and Emma and Amy have kept the foot on the pedal throughout and kept it going. And as have the individual healthcare workers, uh, like Sue mentioned. So I suppose, Dee, that leads us nicely into this week's interview, which I have to say, again, making it all about me, is that I wish... I had Sandy in my life and I will put my hands straight up and saying I had listened to this and gone Adula I mean you know and then I just listened to I know but like I you know I kind of almost was like all right you know would I be judged or would I be and how wrong I was and what a vital incredible role women like Sandy bring into new parents expecting parents second time parents, third time parents life. And you know what? And I know she says it in the chat, but more so now than ever, even listening to her conversation, I felt validated in the things that I have said over the past couple of weeks. So even if you didn't have a doula in your life, I promise you just reflecting over what you perhaps have been through over the past 20 months, whether your birth had a child and a, a baby of you know that was alive of the outcome or maybe you've lost your your baby or maybe you had a pregnancy loss during that time listening to sandy really really will give you strength and will help you feel that little bit of comfort that i think that we all very much need right now hi my name is sandy Connolly. i am a postpartum centric full spectrum doula what that means is i support all pregnancies to all outcomes i support the journey and i support the experience after the pregnancy has finished, whether that's a live baby or not a live baby, to a miscarriage or a stillbirth or an abortion, my support to all of those outcomes of a pregnancy. And along the way and fertility journeys and along the way of getting pregnant and minding people in their experiences to become parents. And immediately when they become parents or not, that's a critical part of the work that I do. So a doula, it's an old word, for it's a Greek word in its history. It meant um, something that I step away from a little bit now, um, but another word would be a birth worker. So somebody who supports people in their birthing experiences. And we mind people and we care for people. We provide people with information. We provide them with education and we provide people with emotional support so I am a mum of one I have had a number of pregnancies myself I have had um and those experiences have led me to do the work that I do I'm a volunteer breastfeeding counsellor I am a person who supports debriefing in birth um I am a community organizer and a person who facilitates peer support groups um which has become more important, more important, more recently, 
than ever before, I believe. So actually, the families that I was working with didn't quite realise the extent of the seriousness of the pandemic. And I went into one of the families and I said, uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to come anymore. We're going to have to look about this. Uh, I didn't actually come in. I was on a phone. I had gone in to pick up my kid from school on that day in March and I was sitting in the car park and I said, I best text these people because we've just been called by the Taoiseach to go and pick our children up from school. And now we need to make decisions as to whether we continue the support in home or not. These two families had had a birth one was a first-time parent, one was a third-time parent. Uh, they had both had different births. They had One had a pelvic vaginal birth and the other had had a third caesarean section. Both families, both parents, both mothers required different and important support in their recovery and transition into the fourth trimester, which is the period that we talk about after the baby is born, which is a lot of people will focus on all the time in the lead up up to the birth. And then we forget that there will have been a massive physical experience, whether that baby is born vaginally or via a cesarean section. That is a huge physical feat that your body has just undertaken. And so we need to rest. So a postpartum doula, what I'll go in is I'll create, I create the space for rest in your home whether, as I said, there's two other kids knocking around in the house or you've got this absolute beautiful bubble of a first time parent. And no interruptions to rest. It's much easier to rest when there's the first little one, because then you've got three other kids pulling out of you go, mom, 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 mom. So <clears throat> what we try and do is create this area and create the mind space of it's OK to sit under your baby and sleep and be fed and brought food and speak about your birth experience and debrief that. And like that in the lead up to say the, the person who was having the, their third cesarean, we did a lot of work together around how to empower that experience for them because there was a very kind of, oh, my body doesn't work feeling. And actually what you can do is you can say, this is how my baby's gonna be born. And we're gonna look at what that means for us and how we're gonna to talk to the people in the room that day to make it as gentle and as comfortable as experience for me as possible as the person giving birth. So anyway, that, uh, that day was interesting. We decided to vote, well, actually I left the decision-making up to those families, which in retrospect, I was having a heart attack all the weekend long until we decided and there was a text message because we didn't know what was going on back in March, 2020. And it feels like such a long time ago soon now that you know, it's like, what happened? What, what did happen? Um, and the people, the thing, I suppose, the thing that I learned from that was that was only kind of supposed to be maybe two weeks and we were all going to lock down. We were all going to flatten the curve if we even remember that phrase. And so we made decisions and then things kind of, it's like, God, this isn't going away. What are we going to do? And so as a person who supports people in their birthing experience and the time immediately afterwards, um, there had been a course that I had been looking to go to over in the UK, a um, around uh, birth debriefing and around minding people in their mental health following, and I'm gonna use the word here, um, a traumatic birth. A traumatic birth is a birth that somebody deems to be traumatic. You know, if you say you had a traumatic birth, I'm gonna believe you and we're gonna work through that. Um, and so even in the space of kind of two weeks or that first month, when partners were being excluded immediately, it was very apparent as a person working in the maternity perinatal experience spaces, it was very apparent that people were not being minded well enough and then coming out and not knowing what happened. So I got on immediately and went and did a birth debriefing course with an amazing teacher and facilitator over in the UK. And immediately Alex saw it as well and she put the course online immediately. Um, so in April, I did that course and, I'm, you know, it was only supposed to be for a month that we were doing this without partners by people's sides who were having babies. Um, and yet it's gone on for 19 months. And I tell you, that's I think that's one of the fundamental pieces of my toolkit these days that I'm I'm working with. So um, in terms of what I, what, I, what I do with that experience now and how it's changed and manifested, so a doula, as a, as a postpartum doula, I, I spent um, some time inside in maternity units, but not all of my time. So I wouldn't be there while the baby was being born in a birthing experience. 
And that might be different if there was um, miscarriage or stillbirth. It's just it's one of those things that there are brilliant birth doulas out there. And, you know, they're also excluded at the minute, along with midwives who are working in the home spaces, um, you know, not getting access to that. To their clients going into the unit as part of the birth team is is quite difficult for everybody. Um, so now what happens as a doula? What happens? What do we do if you can't go into the units or, you know, like that? What's happening is there's much more from from my perspective, there's much more kind of learning together and deciphering fears and anxieties in the lead up to the experience of if you are having a hospital birth, if that's what you've chosen, um, that we do what might be called fear release, or I don't technically call it that. I say, hey, do you want to have a talk and conversation? We'll write down on a piece of paper what you're nervous about, what you don't control. What can we do with your partner being excluded from your birth experience? Because like that, Sue, you know, it's not only about the fact that, oh, I wasn't there when my baby was being born. It's the cases of nobody Nobody is replacing the partners on those wards and units in the maternity units. I'm like, I've been talking about this for more than a year now, and I'm like a broken record for anyone who's been listening to me. And I don't freaking care. We need to talk about the fact that partners are not just there because it's cute to be at the birth of your baby. There is the emotional support. There is the physical support. Like that, one of those families that I'm talking about early in March 2020 had had their third cesarean section birth. An amazing positive experience for that family. That person needed their partner there to hand them the baby to feed their baby, whether that was at the breast or by a bottle. They physically needed somebody to do that. And now we know the circumstances that our midwives are working under are the worst, worst they've ever been. They're losing midwives hand over fist. The, the, you know, the whole profession is losing brilliant people because of burnout. They've been burnt out before the pandemic started. They haven't got the facilities. They haven't got the finances. And so, you know, the birth partners, there's a couple of reasons they're really, really important. Firstly, like I was saying there, they're a physical person to help on the units. And those bodies have not been replaced on the wards. And secondly, and unfortunately, they're a witness to events. And they can speak for you. And, you know, that's really, really important. In the height of an experience, you mightn't be able to physically speak. There are people who give birth and who are, you know, <clears throat> birthing stillborn babies or having miscarriages or abortions who cannot physically speak and are reliant on that person they trust and love. Like Emma said in that first podcast episode, you know, you trust and love your partner. It is the person who is there for you. You've chosen to be together and they must be there. They must be returned, you know. And without that person there for, for the physical, the emotional, and the actual advocacy piece and the witness piece of when something happens, because it's unfortunate that things do happen, things do go wrong. Nobody ever makes up a story that is so difficult to say out loud that they'll have to say it out loud that it didn't happen. And, you know, like, it's been really difficult for people. And I'm looking into the experience. So, you know, I have skills in setting boundaries and in grounding myself and in switching off. But it's not it is, you know, it's secondary, secondary information, secondary experiences right now. Like, you know, we have a, we have a situation where people are gearing up to go into this. At what point do I get out of the car? At what point do I leave her in the car park? At what time do I leave them? At what point do we say no to this? At what point do I say Absolutely not. Every single time you have to go for a scan or present to a unit, it is an emotional turmoil. You know, every time, every time somebody who's pregnant who's had a loss previously goes to the bathroom, it's an emotional turmoil experience. So never mind that. But if you're walking into a scan, be it your early pregnancy unit, your 12-week scan, your 20-week scan, anything can happen until you have that baby alive in your arms. You know, and particularly when it's a wanted pregnancy. And particularly when it's a pregnancy that has the associated dreams and the love that, that is held with that every single time. You know, what really got me started talking about this is part of my own experience in miscarriage and thinking to myself, fuck, imagine having to say that to somebody. 
you've just heard the news and you have to pick up the phone and, and say the, that news to somebody else. You should never have to say that you've had a miscarriage or the baby isn't there until you're ready to say it to whoever it is, to whoever that you trust to say that to. And, you know, that's where the fight in me is, you know, and and the fight of, you know, my own experience that like my 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 kid is nearly 10. So it's quite a while away. But jeepers, fuck, I remember exactly how important my partner was and what happened in my birth experience. And, you know, it's why I do the work I do, the the whole birthing, the, the miscarriage support, the abortion support, the stillbirth support, breastfeeding support, you know, parental minding and caring for because of our own personal experiences we're led and you know I was like you're doing what now you know like my father when I was pregnant with my first baby and he says you're, you're having a baby you know that's how I was so far removed as that kind of ultra feminist I was you know never really the type of person who really expected to use the word mother and yet here we are fighting the fight for all the people doing you know doing this heart work that you know, somebody said to me recently, would you go back and do what you used to do? And I said, no, no interest in it. You know, it's just, it's every single bit of this work as a doula. It's, you know, to use, to use the phrase, it's intersectional. Every piece of your life overlaps with it. And it's really, really important that we are able to say to people, you know, to our HSE leaders, to the people, and it's not about being disparaging to the people on the wards. They have to follow what they have to follow, right? The midwives, the nurses, the porters, everybody. <clears throat> but like, listening to people and so what's happening on the ground is there are people who are avoiding telling their birth stories because of the event and and one of the key signs of a traumatic experience is avoidance as we know well and so there's times where this campaign has really hooshed up and you know there's been an incredible support from the media from both the print media the you know video news outlets the radio and then we get people sharing their stories on a text message with a complete stranger because now they feel empowered to do that and that's where sharing stories is really really important and that's where peer support is really really important so like that one of the things earlier in in the pandemic i think it was about april or may in 2020 it wasn't even it was april and there was one of the leader, leading voices in the doula world, Penny Simkin, was doing this webinar of how to transition onto virtual support and how to, she was going to teach us how to virtually support our clients and our people and our peer groups and all of that. But her webinar didn't work, right? Now she is, she is well published, she's well known. If you know anything about birthing and stuff, you'll have had Penny Simkin's book put in front of you or something about her. And it didn't work because more than a thousand people signed up to this webinar. And her thing broke and we were sitting here at the kitchen table and like I had the thing on and it was looping, you know, we'll get access shortly. And I thought to myself, fuck, if she can do it and make a balls of us, you can start this virtual thing that you were thinking about. So we started this virtual call every Friday morning that we called your virtual village where people came on to, to share, to, to listen to each other in the height of the lockdowns, to come on. And, and within that group, something that I never thought could happen happened. And these beautiful friendships have formed. Sh stories were shared. It was a very, very safe, respectful, inclusive space. And, you know, a couple of people would sit there very, very, very quietly. And you could read body language, even via Zoom. You can read someone's body language and you could just say, hey, are you OK? And, you know, then that might lead into another conversation offline, one on one, have a conversation. And then again, going back to that skill set back in April 2020, the, the debriefing and, you know, knowing what mental health looks like, knowing what perinatal mental health disorders looks like, knowing what the signals for birth trauma looks like is really, really important as a doula, as somebody supporting people in our community. You know, like right now, we've moved to a beautiful space where we have a bit, a bit of capacity for outside meetups. And some of those people who had never met each other before, who came to the virtual group online, are coming with, you know, their 18-month-old babies. And those 18-month-old babies have never seen another baby in person, really. But more than that, Sue, those parents have never met another parent of a small person. And, you know, how do we learn these skills of parenting? Yeah. You know, we learn it by 
by interacting with each other. And like that, as a doula, you can do so much virtually. But like it means a lot for somebody, certainly me. I'm a really, really tactile person to the extent that I was working with a family in December 2019. And I had to say, I had to say to them, I am really, really tactile and I see that you aren't. So every time I come in here, I'm going to sit on my hands for a bit to remind myself because I'm a touchy feely type person. So this was pre-pandemic. It was all fine, except it wasn't fine because the person who was pregnant was like, Shh, get your freaking hands off me. I'm not that type of person. I'm not a hugger. I'm not a kisser. You know, and like, so those type of things, like sitting quietly with somebody and putting your hand on the end of their elbow or touching their knee, it's a really gentle and really empowering thing so that somebody feels heard in their space of what they're sharing, you know? And so oh, it's been a, a difficult navigation. And it's fair to say that we all want partners back in as soon as possible because you know you're getting things like the connection piece of the the parent who isn't having the baby the co-parent the father the mother listening to the heartbeat on a scan seeing what the scan looks like you know all of these things that are really critically important which calls for why can't we put more midwifery care into the community you know, why does it need to be? Why does it need to be into a maternity unit? Like I know we have home care, home birth provision, except it's tiny. We have a group of self-employed community midwives and another group of private midwives Ireland. Self-employed community midwives work under the HSE and have a very strict criteria. Private midwives Ireland work under a slightly more broad criteria simply because they're their um, insurance base is based out of the UK, which is slightly less risk averse. And so that's the alternative option. And so we have to think about these stories where people are, you know, having babies in the car outside the hospital and think, and people will think that and go, why the fuck did that happen? And then as a, as a birth support professional, I say, I know why that happened. I know why that happened. That person needed that other person there, you know, and so a lot of it, even, you know, they might, you might say, well, is it all about the person who's had the baby, the mother? A lot of this work at the minute as well is talking with the partner because, you know, you need to have, you need to have that team. You need to have that team, you know, yourself, you'll need to have that team walking in. At what point is what okay? How are you going to feel leaving your partner at the door? You know, and talking about these things beforehand, it's like, you know, for years, I say, if, if we know what we can expect, we can better manage the situation a little bit. You know, our emotions are going to be fraught. How do we feel about, how do we feel about at this point, you're not going to be permitted access? And we can sing about the whys and we can talk about 90 something percent vaccination rates in our populations. We can talk about partners would do anything in my mind. Partners would do anything to have access to their person when they're having their baby or having a loss or going through a loss experience. They would do anything. They would walk on hot coals as far as I'm concerned. So if you have to do a bit of PCR testing, come on, get on it. Like it's not okay. And what we all knew before this pandemic, you know, we all knew the maternity services, perinatal services were stretched and broken. But jeepers tonight, I don't think any of us estimated quite how broken they are you know, in terms of critical numbers on the wards, in terms of availability to access, in terms of, you know, multi-bed units, in terms of the levels of dignity provided to families. You know, you know I, know, I know myself, my own experience, I stood up and I, I was walking through a corridor all those years ago and I saw a man in front of me who had just clearly had the best day of his life he was, you know, he was beaming ear to ear. He was like a Cheshire cat. The smile was just every single moment. Obviously, we were in a, a maternity hospital, so it was quite apparent. But I remember him looking at me. And I remember shame crossing him. So why do we have a situation where the early pregnancy unit, and they'll say it's because we don't want to, you know, because I've asked the question. And they said, well, we don't want to have to have, you know, a shameful backdoor entrance. I says, you know what? The person who's lost a baby would sooner not walk out into a unit full of beautiful pregnant people and have to hold their shit together so that they didn't 
create a disturbance or an upset for that person who's going in. Like, that's just not right. And so let's look at what these buildings look like. Let's, let's ask our health minister in our budget. Let's ask our Taoiseach to acknowledge the harm that has been done and to call to that by ring fencing enough money for the facilities that are fit for purpose and to pay staff to work in those hospitals a dignified wage, enough for the most important work that they're doing, and to allow people to navigate those buildings that they don't have to have fear and shame by walking around a corridor and not be able to not look at something because it's so upsetting for everybody, you know? And like that, what about the fallout from this experience? There, I, I know people who I've, I've had conversations with, and I'm not going to be very, very, very specific because it's their stories and it's I, I don't want to share somebody else's story that isn't my story. I know a number of people, and not only a handful, who will never, ever have another baby again because of the experience that they've had in this pandemic in birthing their, their baby or indeed in loss. And so we need to check where the support to that is. What is the perinatal mental health support that we are offering as a country that isn't vested in private practice? Because it shouldn't be only the person who has the privilege to afford private practice. Now, whether that private practitioner says, do you know what? I'll do that on a sliding scale. I'll do that for no money. People who work should be paid for their work. People who have had serious, difficult experiences under our government's facilities should be able to be supported. And again, that should not necessarily happen in the midwifery unit or the maternity care unit where they have had that birth or that experience of loss because lots of people don't want to cross that threshold again, right? If you've had something serious happen to you, your body goes, I'm not going in there. I'm going to protect myself, my brain, and physically, I'm not going to go in there. So, you know, what do, we, what, what do we want? Well, we want birth centers. We want beautiful birth centers all over the country. But more seriously than the aspirational goal, we want the finances to support people who have navigated these last 19 months in their perinatal experiences. So perinatal is the year before pregnancy and the year after a pregnancy or a birth, right? So it's a two-year period. And like then your postpartum experience. And what does that mean? And how do you navigate that? And there are people that are only coming up from air, for air now who had babies in maybe May, who are only starting to recognize how this has impacted their day-to-day -day lives. You know, and it's, the finances will be required because this will be something that will be felt for generations to come. You know, we know in Ireland, we know, and Stephen Donnelly called out the day before the election in 2020, in February, 2020, who was down here, so I live in Bray, he was down on Bray Seafront talking about the health, being the health spokesperson at that time talking about putting women's health central to his campaign to be elected. Now, Stephen Donnelly, now is the moment to put that money where your mouth is, because it is absolutely so vitally important for these families. Perinatal mental health isn't something that is, oh, I'm a bit sad today. It can disrupt lives. It can end families. Children are impacted because of a mother or father or their parents' well-being in their mental health because those parents might not be able to function as well as they could if they had had support to navigate to get better. And many, many people, you know, so to say, many, many people do get better and do function day to day. I'm one of these people. I experienced significant postnatal depression and anxiety and significant postnatal depression and anxiety following loss wasn't able to leave my bed and now look I'm up and I'm functioning and I'm able and it's part of why I talk about that experience because it means you know I haven't got five heads I'm relatively okay most of the time some days I'm just I'm you know the wind takes it from under me and I'm not able but most of the time and it was you know pre the pandemic the figures that I, I knew were kind of varying between one in five one in seven people who are having babies will experience some level of perinatal mood disorder. In the pandemic in May 2020, the figures from um, Postpartum Stress International, which is the formative uh, place that does the studies over in America, said it was one in three. And so 
on average, we have, right, let's look at the numbers. On average, we have about 50 to 60,000 babies born in this country every year. It's got, the numbers have gone down a bit, but they're coming back up again at the minute. That's a lot of people, right? That's live births. Then we have about one in four pregnancies are ending in miscarriage. And we have a number ending in stillbirth. And, you know, we're not even going to talk about how difficult it was to have an abortion in a pandemic under the health regime of the abortion legislation, because why could you not leave your house for two kilometers radius, yet you had to get, organize a bus, get on a plane or a boat, leave the country, because you had, you weren't quite fatal enough at your 20 week scan. You know, all of us is all encompassing and it does take finance. And women are important and families are really, really important. We're the crux of our society, right? What our children do, what they see, that's how they respond to their lives. And so, so yes, I am a parent. I'm a parent to a singleton child. That little one is nearly going to be 10. Um, I have had miscarriages. I have had abortions. I have breastfed my babies, my baby. I have pumped my milk. I have expressed my milk. I have given bottles. And because of those experiences, I get to do what I do because it changed my dynamic and my makeup. And I'm really privileged that people trust me with their stories, you know, like that two o'clock in the morning, you might put a post up in the day and somebody sends you a message on Instagram or a Facebook message to say, this has happened. Maybe you could support me or help me, or maybe you could just listen to me, you know, and that's what we need in our health service. And we need finance for that. And we need the budget to acknowledge the harm that has been caused. And by way of an apology, they could start with financing our perinatal services. So that was Sandy Connolly there. Um, and she was sharing her story of working as a doula. As you said beforehand, Suzanne, you know, what an amazing woman. What an amazing, and like for me, so much of what Sandy talks about is about the aftercare um, that exactly that she that she offers. And I think that's something that we have heard time and time again in this podcast. And it's something that you said off air, you know, I wish that every woman was assigned a doula because it is a more holistic approach. And there are certain things that just medicine can't provide. And that's fair enough. You know, you you can't be as emotionally hands-on um, in, you know, for a new mother or for new parents um, in the way that Sandy can. And it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. And the passion with which she speaks about what she does, you know, Sue said it earlier on about other healthcare workers, it's a vocation. Um, and I think that just comes across so much in Sandy's story. Absolutely. I think what stood out to me and is that, you know, I think going into having my first pregnancy or and I had a loss and then going on and having Ushin and the fear that surrounded all of those that having a baby in that newborn baby bubble and that expectation of what I believed that picture looked like and I think thankfully with you know even down to this hashtag better maternity care is conversations women are having and the realistic expectations that we should limit ourselves to because we put unreal expectations on what that new you know new bubble looks like you know, and that it's okay. Like I loved at the, towards the start that she had said about um, the new baby and, and sitting and feeding yourself and the baby just, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, rather than the being up and the cleaning the house or like I had a very Instagram-esque picture of what it should look like. You know, I wish I had the knowledge I had on Sadie that I had on Ushin because I wouldn't have beaten myself up as bad. And I always said, I never had postnatal depression, but I didn't have the baby blues. I was in this Navy haze for a while that was somewhere in between the two. With services like Sandy and Adula, of someone coming and validating those, that's sometimes that's all you need. You know, it really is. And that fourth trimester, and we'll talk to Linda, I'm really excited to have a catch up with Linda, but um, that fourth trimester, especially in my first seven years ago, no one told me about the fourth, fourth trimester. Everyone just went to every baby and that's great. You push it around a book, you're going to dress it, it's going to be wonderful. Nobody told me I'd be on my hands and my knees. Nobody told me that I'd ring my friend and go, is this going to stop? Like, well, I feel like this forever. And she was like, no. But if you do, we'll figure it out, you know, like that fourth trimester and having 
you know, hashtags like better maternity care and having those conversations is a real, real positive for women, I feel. Linda, I think great time to bring you in here. You must have heard loads of stories like this from women. Yeah, but even just I'm with Suzanne um, on this, like what I wish I had known on my first baby. And in particular, um, it was three years ago and the fourth trimester was kind of just starting to come into the vocabulary and um, but wasn't very kind of popular. Um, but I remember after about nine months, like breaking down, crying on my kitchen floor and my husband just, you know, came to me and he was like, you need to talk to somebody. And that phrase, the navy haze, Suzanne, like I wasn't depressed, but I was finding it really difficult to process the the very difficult birth we had had. And it just kept, it's almost like... um like a catapult snap snap back you know you think you're kind of doing okay and suddenly you're just snapped back to whatever it is and it might be just something like having to go get a smear test and suddenly it brings it all back up again or somebody asks you oh how are you feeding and all of the the issues maybe that you would have had all come back up and the person is very well meaning but you're then in a hoop for three days afterwards and um and so I remember the first thing when I went to see this counsellor that my GP recommended, and I sat there and I saw her and she was like, it's an awful time being like, you know, first time mom. She was like, it's just like, you know, the monotony and the, the just the sheer volume of like cooking, cleaning, sleep deprivation. She was like, of course you're miserable. And I was, it was a revelation. I was just like, oh my God she's so right like this is a very valid emotion to this experience and I think that's what we don't talk about enough and like I was so ignorant like after I listened to Sandy's interview I messaged her and I said how I wish I had known what I know now then because I would have been totally ignorant kind of thought a doula was a hippy dippy sort of anti-medicine role I didn't really understand it at all it was pure ignorance and like Sandy's in my life because she's in the better maternity care group and I've learned so much from her but I know for like I know now my kids are only three and one I have two girls if and when they decide to ever get pregnant I won't be doing a baby shower I won't be you know doing spa days I'll be like here's a doula this is what you actually need is somebody who's going to look after you as a person and is only interested in you as a person and, and helping you process it um, and I think it's there's so many incredible aspects of what Sandy was talking about in terms of the impact of the restrictions and processing it and it's such a valid point because the restrictions are only one aspect of the impact of COVID on families. There's a very sharp end of it, but there's a whole totality of experience of, um, you know, just simple things like Emma messaged yesterday to say she took her little girl to the local chipper and it's the first time they've ever gone to the local chipper, like really, really small thing. And like her little girl was just mesmerized by the place. And I remember the exact same last Christmas going into a place in town for a cup of tea. And my little girl looking around the place she was almost six months and she just couldn't. It was like you could see she was so totally overwhelmed because she'd never been anywhere. She'd never been anywhere outside of her house. And um, so I think it is. There's so much like this is I think you said it earlier, Dee, this is only the tip of the iceberg. There is there's so much to unpack about our experiences and there is so much to dismantle in the maternity system. So will I get on to that? So we met with the HSE again yesterday. It was our scheduled meeting and we obviously had had to do our little extra addition to the podcast last week, Dee, because we got a, a significant uh a step forward it's not everything but it was such a significant shift that it did feel like we had moved the mountain Suzanne it really did and like I have to say even like it's what a week later from that and I still feel so overwhelmed by it um, and if anybody wants you know to know the reality of what it's like to be campaigning on this with two smallies and trying to work a full-time job I was coming out of the GPs with my two kids 
and um, because you know they have the head cold virus that every single child in the country seems to have right now and my toddler would not play ball with me on any level and I was putting my sick one-year-old into the car seat trying to get into the chemist saw the email come in from the HSE but couldn't read it because I had to give the toddler Netflix to trying to try and get her to actually agree to get into the car so I could go into the and I'm there in the chemist like waiting for the inhaler being like I just need to get out to my car I need to read this email I need to read this email uh, and oh I the longest 10 minutes of my life um so look we have a lot of progress all of the restrictions are not gone i think that's the first thing to say because there definitely seems to be just from messages coming in people think the entirety of all the restrictions are lifted that's not the case the hse made a significant move on the issue of visiting hours so from next monday the first of november all 19 maternity hospitals can allow inpatient visiting for one nominated support partner without any restriction from 8 a.m. in the morning until 9 p.m. at night, which is a huge, huge move. So for those based in Dublin, people have had it for a while in the three Dublin hospitals, but like Mullingar is still 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, Limerick have moved slightly, Cork have moved slightly, Letterkenny is still only an hour, Wexford, Waterford, you know, so it's really, really big statement from them. And then the other thing as well is that a lot of the language about labour has softened. So the, the HSE, because this policy is an infection control policy, it's not about, as they said to us yesterday, it's not about the cent from their perspective they don't care about the centimeters of dilation it's about are you in a multi-bed ward or in are you in a delivery room so there you know there's going to be a knock-on impact but there is a lot of hesitancy from people around celebrating this because we know that compliance has been an, a consistent issue right throughout this campaign now yesterday was very very positive we spent about two hours about an hour and a half talking to them about this and we started off the meeting talking about compliance and they have visited a number of hospitals um, and they have met with the different hospital groups at three different layers so they've met with the obstetric uh, medical leads they've met with the midwifery leads and they've met with the ceos and every single layer of that have said, we are going to have this in place by the 1st of November. Now, people are still messaging me because, you know, people, doctors and nurses and midwives at antenatal clinics are saying something differently. So it's a bit of a wait and see moment, you know, now. Um, from a campaign perspective, we're going to be running a compliance check all through November. So we're going to have an online form that people can come in and kind of add in. I was in this hospital. This is, you know, I was allowed partner access. I wasn't allowed partner access. This is the issue, all of that. Um, and we've told the HSE we're doing that. <laughs> we're like, we'll, we'll have that ready. And we've got direct access to be able to flag like really serious compliance issues with them. The other thing that was really good yesterday, I suppose, is that we have a very clear cut now complaints process for everybody. So if there is an issue in your hospital around the restrictions, you go to the director of midwifery in that hospital. They would also like you to use the your service, your say process. But like we kind of outlined a few issues people have with that, but they would like to be able to capture it there as well. But the director of midwifery is really important. And if you're not getting any satisfaction there, um, you then go to the group director of midwifery and that as 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 boring and as sort of bureaucratic as that sounds it is actually really important because that is how we affect change it is from people contacting you know to not be put off by these titles to not be put off by these positions and i think what people have really realized over the course of this campaign is that their voice has power you said that suzanne at the start you know women's voices are rising and Sandy said it as well, actually, in the in the, the conversation about, <clears throat> and we are, I think, especially for, for first time parents. I, I know what Oshin, I just nodded. I nodded with everything they said to me. You know, there was 12 people in a room. I didn't know what was happening. You know, only that we'd gone to the course and they said, all oh, these people come in for a reason. So that was the only thing I just was, I was so mute. Only that Joey was there and Joey said, what, you know, so when you're at your most vulnerable, 
even that if your partner, your person who's there to know that all of this is available to them as well, to be aware that these are people, there's somebody there you can go and speak to, you can follow these lines. And I think that will help massively. And and Linda, how can the rest of us help as well? Because I know <clears throat> with the partner access being restored, it gives um, couples um, and families more opportunity I guess to talk about that baby bubble Suzanne that you've spoken about before to to disappear into that because they don't they actually don't have to put up as much of a fight um but I guess the risk with that is that the bigger picture gets lost so how can the rest of us help keep the momentum going and and help people like you so I think, you know, you mentioned it the, when you said this is a better maternity care movement and as terrifying as that is for those of us who are leading it, is it, it is absolutely the case, you know, this is about ensuring like our maternity system isn't fit for purpose and it hasn't been for a long time. We have plenty of documentation, plenty of research to show that's the case. And so very much moving to a space, you know, this chapter on partner restrictions is hopefully coming to an end but the book has yet to be written and so it's really important for us that we you know keep moving that we keep building a coalition of the willing to really try and improve all of those structural issues and all of those challenges so I would say to people right now I can't tell you what that looks like because I was just going to ask do you know what the next chapter is I I don't yes um I like I think one of the things um like definitely we we know that we're going to keep going you know that this isn't a full stop after the um restrictions but like everything else I suppose we have trusted the process and we have trusted ourselves we have a really tight group um you know we all it's it's an incredible relationship it's been really transformative for all of us I think um because we all have a shared value system around this but very different perspectives and it leads to something really beautiful and effective at the end of it but like we like I ended the meeting with the HSE yesterday Martin is the man who coordinates it from the HSE side um, and just as well on it on a, another specific piece, the antenatal appointments are still outstanding as well for the restrictions. Um, and that was one of the other aspects we talked to him about yesterday. And so we got to the end of the meeting, like 45 minutes past the time he had scheduled it to finish. And I was like, so, Martin, we're meeting again before Christmas, I presume. Like, you know, you're not you're not going to get to Christmas without meeting us. And he was like, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I think one of the things that is actually really important to recognize and my husband gets credit for bringing this observation to my attention is we are incredibly privileged to live in a democracy where access to decision makers like this is possible you know like we are a group of six women a group of service providers in sandy's case and but you know service users in most of our instances we built a campaign using nothing but our voices and we have been invited to the decision-making tables of the higher ups in the HSC. That wouldn't be possible in lots and lots of lots of countries. And so I think it's really incredible to just goes to show that for all the problems that we have in Ireland and lots of different areas, there is also huge opportunity for committed progressive people to make change and to make real meaningful change for people right across the country. So people can still keep finding us at the hashtag Better Maternity Care on Twitter, on Instagram, whether it's Emma's In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy, whether it's me on Women Ascend, and we'll keep building together. I am just trying not to ball after that, Linda, to be perfectly honest. It's like this podcast though, right? So it's like Sue sending a message to Dee and saying, we need to talk about it, or Amy sending that call out, or six women standing up for hundreds of thousands of us. So I don't think I've ever cried as much as I have during this campaign, to be perfectly honest. Like, you know, when I was listening to Sandy's um, interview and she pauses for a sec and she talks about being on a Zoom and just looking at somebody and saying, hey, how are you? My eyes welled up listening to it because that's 
that's all all people want is to feel heard and to feel seen and there is so like there's so many intersections of this campaign you know when you talk about you know midwives on the ground and everything like we don't value care work in this country we don't give it the central role that it has in our society and a lot of that is to do with innate sexism and it's to do with not valuing women and I think what's incredible is women are saying no more I'm not taking it like the standard you are setting for us, like, you know, from government or from whatever decision maker and most decision making tables right across every sphere of our society are male dominated. You can't get away from those statistics. And I think I I really think there is a moment of reckoning coming in, coming in. There is a moment of reckoning coming and it's going to be incredible. I totally agree. And 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 also to your point earlier, Linda, about the kind of closeness that comes from shared purpose. Suzanne, you were talking earlier about our, our WhatsApp group for this podcast and not to be too cliquey, but I do think it's so lovely that like, I mean, that group is now lit. Like it's one of my most active WhatsApp groups. And like, you know, Suzanne, I don't think you probably knew Sue before this. You probably knew Alison. I knew the three of you independently I didn't know Linda you know and it's just so lovely how everyone has come together with a shared purpose and and what's been you know as a complete aside what's been lovely for me as well is as someone who doesn't have kids a lot of friends in my in my real life uh, who do have kids or who have struggled through some of the issues that we've discussed before have actually come and chatted to me about them in a way I don't think they would have known I was open to hearing about before. Um, and really I incredible, really, I think. Well, we're exactly as you said, like the reckoning. But I think, I think as women, and I, I say it as as a as a mother <laughs> of two little girls, things are definitely changing. You know, I wouldn't have had conversations with my mom about birth or giving birth, and my mom would say, you know, oh, we didn't have all those things, and she would be a great supporter of women, but. They were so suppressed. And I know that that sounds like such an extremist word, even to talk about a woman who gave birth to me 40 years ago. But we're still here and it still exists. It's just not in the same veil that it was 40 years ago, what we did to women. But I hope in 40 years time or 30 years time, if my girls go to have babies, that they get the care that they should have, you know, that we have a better structure but that's across every branch of their life but it's like exactly as you said and it, fe- it feels like there's a real turn in the tide you know that that blue moon has occurred and that women now are starting to use the voices and the more we use them the better and stronger it becomes you know and you're so right Suzanne because I think when I think about my niece when you think you guys think about your daughter is like better is fine but better isn't good enough almost it for this week but before we go we would like to thank all of the amazing frontline healthcare workers we know how hard they are working we know how hard they have worked and we definitely have not forgotten that no that's so true and it's why it's been so great this week to actually hear um just one part of that side of the experience and what it's actually been like for people who are genuinely just trying to do their best for their patients and the people in their care Ultimately, the only people who should be held to account here are in government. And as always, we asked today's guest what they'd say to our Taoiseach and Health Minister if they could. I have no doubt that Sandy has some incredibly choice and passionate words for those people. But just a word of warning that these were recorded in advance of the recent announcements um, that we discussed on today's podcast. So as always, we leave you with her thoughts on that. What would I like to say to the Taoiseach and to the Minister for Health? Somebody has to be accountable for these restrictions. Somebody has to be able to be the person to understand why these restrictions continued are so dangerous. End the restrictions. Understand what's being caused and how you're impacting families, pregnant people, their partners, It's more than just not being able to be in the hospital units. It's much, much more than that. End the restrictions, return families the dignity to which they should be afforded and finance them 
finance the supports that are necessary that are going to be the fallout of these 19 months of restrictions to maternity units for our families. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bauer Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.